Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Guess what? We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. That's right. That's our commitment for the year. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I wanted to help you this morning kind of get oriented for that a little bit by showing you a picture, an artistic rendering of the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, Jesus is like, now I don't know exactly if that's come over here. I have something to say. Or if that's, you know, if you haven't seen Jesus Revolution, the movie, so good. Pete recommended it last week. But it, there's, I don't know if this is true to the movement or not, but many times when there was really good news, they point up like, yes. From heaven, yes, yes, from there. That's the blessing. And Jesus is bringing in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven. Um, a different way, an upside down kingdom. Very different than the kingdoms of the earth. And so I think it's a fitting tribute uh, to, to kind of what, what it may have looked like. Jesus called his disciples to him. In Matthew chapter 5, he just started teaching them. Um, so maybe this will help as well. Um, here's, a, here's a, you are here. This is, this is where you are. You ever been at a, at a shopping mall or, and you're like, I don't know where the food court is, but I really need to know. Or I don't know where the bathroom is. I don't even know where I am. And so you find that big display and somewhere on there's a triangle or a, something like this. And it says, you are here. And you're like, I see that on the map, but is in, some of us are better at that than others, right? In terms of directions and where we are. You are here. Let, let's take a moment to, to just kind of explain where that is. Because we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount um, for a while. So where we are right now is important to kind of get our bearings. So, so let's do that real quick. Um, before we do that, I want to I make this point. Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian, uh, once shared this idea that we live in a three-storied universe. And what he meant by that isn't three stories like your house as much as three stories. Um, and the idea he, he conveys in, in, that, in this book or in, this, in his teachings is that we're always in this process of like orientation disorientation, and then a reorientation. And uh, that happens a lot. And, and Jesus actually speaks with, with this commitment to orientation, disorientation, and reorientation in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've had an orientation of sorts, okay? And, and it starts with this profound truth. Jesus begins by saying, blessed, 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 blessed. Nine times he uses the word Blessed. In Latin, that's the word beatus, which is why we call them the beatitudes. Blessing, 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 blessing. This fundamental foundational truth should define our understanding of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. We are blessed by Jesus. So whatever kind of week you've had, whatever kind of uh, morning you've had, we need to come back to this fundamental truth before we go anywhere. We are blessed by Jesus. If you're here for a blessing, you've come to the right place. Jesus is here, and I pray you walk away blessed. Second, we are essential to Jesus. So after Jesus says, blessed, 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 nine times, he turns to his disciples, this, this motley crew, like uh, some of you guys are thinking of the band. I'm talking about a, a, a varied and a different kind of gathering of people, very diverse. Um, we got fishermen, we got tax collectors, we got zealots, we got all these different types of people. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. What Jesus is saying uh, is you are essential in my kingdom. 
Now, some of us, we, we just lived through uh, the COVID experience and there were people who were essential workers and there were people who were non-essential workers. In the kingdom of God, you are all essential. And, and that's surprising. Just as the blessings Jesus pronounced were surprising for people in situations that didn't seem like they were blessings, in the same way, we're all essential in the kingdom of God. Salt and light. And then Jesus turns and he does something different. So there's been an orientation here. You are blessed. You are essential. But then there's, there's some disorientation. Remember, Jesus is on a mountain. And Pastor Pete reminded us just a few weeks ago that this is kind of like uh, Moses on Mount Sinai where he receives the Ten Commandments and the, and the law, which then he, he then gives to the people so they can live life together God's way. Uh, but, but now Jesus is on a mountain with his disciples and... Um, and he's going to return to the law, but in a way that's kind of disorienting, pretty confusing for the disciples. In fact, Jesus says these words, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have been pretty shocking. We know it was because in another one of the gospels, the, the disciples actually respond like, uh, okay, then who's getting in? Because those guys are super righteous. Like, in their understanding, this, this, is, this doesn't work. This is confusing. Jesus is, is beginning to, to reorient his disciples. First, this disorienting truth. Look, look if you think um, those guys are righteous, yeah, you, got it, you got it wrong. You got to have a righteousness even greater than that. Um, Jesus then begins to say, he adopts a, a rhythm for the next. How many of you guys are familiar? Martin Luther King's like, I have a dream speech. Like he gets to the end and he's totally off the script now and he's just like, I have a dream and I have a dream. And it's this part where it's, just, it's repetitive, but it's inviting people to join him in this new understanding. And Jesus does something similar. He says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I tell you something new. And every time he says, you've heard that it was said, he reaches for the Old Testament law, which is the word of God for the people of God to live like God. But, but Jesus has seen that word weaponized in a way that's not his intent. And so Jesus says, look, look, you heard this, but I tell you, let's go deeper. Let me get to that in just a second. But that's really important to unlock what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is redefining righteousness, recentering kingdom relationships. So I want you to say that with me because it's a lot of ours. Ready? Jesus is redefining righteousness and recentering kingdom relationship. And that's a lot to unpack. But here we go. We're gonna jump into Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna pray one more time and ask God to help us hear his voice, hear the voice of Jesus as we read. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that, that these words are God-breathed. And that even now, you can speak to our hearts. So we pray that you would give us um, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to your voice, your truth. And Lord, that, that words that might have been weaponized in our past would, uh, would be instead heard in your voice, Jesus. And we pray all this in your name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 27. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now those are some hard words. There's enough there, I think, to make every one of us a little uncomfortable, right? You know, maybe as you hear those words, that's uncomfortable because somebody near you, somebody really close to you has gone through a divorce. Or maybe you grew up in a family where divorce was your experience. And these words just, they sting. They feel um, uh, just like, like, there's, like there's, there's shame or there's, there's guilt there. Maybe this is uncomfortable because you yourself have experienced divorce. You've gone through a divorce. You know, the sting of that, that reality, that experience. Maybe this is uncomfortable because uh, Jesus seems to say adultery isn't something that happens out here. It's something that happens right here. And every one of us can identify with that daily struggle, maybe, to just keep our hearts pure, not to lust after a man or not to lust after a woman. Maybe this is uncomfortable because Jesus seems to suggest we'd be better off cutting off our hand or gouging out our eye than to live a life of adultery. So there's lots of reasons for this to be uncomfortable, right? And, and we don't want to run from that. We're here sitting at Jesus' feet to hear him say these things. But they can often be, I think, misunderstood. And we can't speak to everything that's being said here, but I think there's three things we have to hear. So I want to make these things clear and invite you to, to rejoice in them with me. The first is that God hates adultery. Now, maybe you thought I was going to say God hates divorce. And maybe you heard that before. Um, if you're paying attention to these words, Jesus seems to be talking about adultery as his main point, his main idea. And there's a reason for that. Um, divorce in Jesus' day was legalized adultery. You know, it, was a, it was something that men could use to give a woman they were tired of or no longer interested in a certificate and say, you know what, I'm going to move on. In fact, Josephus, first century historian, said as much. He talked about his wife and said, you know, I got tired of her, so I just gave her and I sent her away and I found someone else. Um, God hates that. Um, he hates that, that, what that does. And this is why God hates adultery, because it is destructively heartbreaking. Like it is, and I mean in every way. You know, if you've been through a divorce or you've been close to a divorce, that it, it, it just is traumatic on a level that is hard to understand until it has touched your life. It's destructively heartbreaking. But even adultery within the heart, like Jesus is talking about at the beginning of this, text, of this, uh, this passage, um, is destructive. When, when I, in my heart, 
have begun lusting to be with somebody else. I am doing damage to my heart's capacity to have a true, a good, a, a right relationship with my wife. It's true for you, with your husband, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend. Whenever my heart is given to another, it makes it hard for me to give my whole heart to, to my husband or my wife. And that's just true. And it, it, So it, it damages my heart in ways that makes it hard for me to be all that God wants me to be in relationship with somebody. Uh, this is like um, what, what um, a counselor would call uh, maybe paraphilia. It's this, this idea that my heart is so uh, tied up in, in, in fantasy with others that I can't be in reality good in relationship with those who I'm supposed to be in relationship with. There's a second truth we've got to hear beyond how destructively heartbreaking adultery is. God calls us to a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the legal experts. This is what he says, but, but we've got to dig a little deeper to know what that means. There's a moment when, when a young man comes to Jesus and he, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus responds in a curious way. He says, how do you read it? How do you, how do you read it? Well, there's a real difference in the way Jesus reads the Old Testament and the way that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law read the Old Testament. You understand, for them, righteousness is about doing exactly what the law says. And so for them, righteousness is alignment with the words given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And notice, as Jesus talks about adultery and divorce here, he says, you've heard that it was said, Exodus chapter 20, you've heard that it was said, Deuteronomy chapter 24, these are words that were given to the people of God on Mount Sinai. But Jesus goes back further and he calls them past beyond before the mountain to the garden. It's God's heart, God's original intent is what Jesus is interested in restoring. Something that is truly holy and glorious and good, very good. That's God's heart. And so the difference between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law how they read it and how Jesus reads it. It's all about a bigger vision, a grander vision, a more holistic heart. It's about the heart of God. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're ever like this. I was thinking about this earlier. You know, when my mom would, would leave me and my brother and my sister at the house in the summer, she was a teacher. Uh, summer would be like a spring break or something like that. Whatever, she actually had to go to, into, into school and we were left behind like those holidays. Um, She'd leave us with a list of things to do. Does that happen to anybody else? Like your parents leave and you're like, oh, this is gonna be great. We're gonna have the house to ourselves. And we're like, wake up and there's this list. We're like, this isn't a day off at all. So we start working to do all the things, right? And, uh, and she'd come home and she'd say, well, did you do them? We'd be like, yeah. And she'd be like, doesn't look like you did not well, well, technically, mom, you just said, we would go back to the, the exact writing and be like, you know, it says here, it doesn't say all the rooms. It says, just as your room and uh, technically, there's, you know, and, and really, what does your room mean? I mean, so we were always like parsing along, like, you know that heart, right? That's the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law define righteousness. Righteousness is about like being true and aligned to the letter of the law, and God's heart is for something much better, much bigger, much, much greater than that. Um, in, a, in a class I used to teach um, on, on uh, Christian values and ethics in business, we would talk about what it means to be a, a corporate citizen, right? Like, uh, and we, we talk about like four layers of that. 
Start, start, like base level with what you're legally um, required to do and to be. Like, don't break any laws. Like, let's start there as a business, all right? And then we talk about, well, there's an economic, like, reality. Like, we should be pursuing some gain, like being good for, to make a, a, a profit so that we can keep people employed, and we, that, that's second. Third is ethical. Like, let's do the ethical thing. It, it might be more than what's legally required or what's economically beneficial. What's ethical? And then finally, the top layer of that is to be philanthropic, even to be sacrificial, to give some of what we have to see others thrive. Well, like as people, shouldn't we be aligned in a similar way? Not just what's legally required, but to look beyond that. And that's Jesus. Jesus is different than the, than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they're all about, well, okay, well, the law says this and the law gives us permission to do this. Well, just because the law gives me permission to do it doesn't mean it's good. And men and women, sorry, not men and women, men, of Jesus' day, they were taking a certificate of divorce and just using it to dismiss women. In fact, you could say, you know, Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter five are in a way like rescuing women from years of abuse to say, no, 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 no. You can't just discard somebody because you're tired of them. Like, that's not my intent. That's not my desire. Third truth we have to hear this morning that in the kingdom of God, righteousness is a calling and a credit. In the kingdom of God, righteousness is a calling and a credit. You know, um, Jesus says hard things, and this isn't the only place. You know, he gets real honest with his disciples in Luke chapter nine, um, and, he, and some people are coming to him and saying, hey, I'll follow you, and he says, well, it's not an easy road. And he goes on to say, you know, anyone who follows me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, follow after them. This is not easy. It's not hard. And it's righteousness, like true kingdom righteousness is going to cost you something. It just does. That's a reality. But at the same time, righteousness in the kingdom of God does not start with you or with me. It starts with Jesus. He is the righteous one. In fact, you know, it's interesting. Um, have you guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know what these are? I'll give you a, a, a brief understanding. So there were these boys, shepherds, hanging out in the, just in the, in the Middle East, walking around a little bit, having fun. And they get bored because they're just sheep, you know, how, how, watching sheep. So they're like, hey, let, let's throw rocks. It'll be fun. So they're throwing rocks. It becomes a contest. And there's a, there's a cave they can see up above them. And they're like, well, I bet I can make it up there. And the guy's like, no, you can't. He's like, yeah, I can. He hurls it, throws it up into the cave. And they hear this sound of like shattering, like, jars or glass or something like a window and they're like <gasps> they're like oh we got to go and figure out what, like what we've done like what, what that is so they climb up and into the cave and when they get into the cave what they see are all of these clay jars they're just filled with scrolls and they're like they realize they've stumbled onto something well they, they come to find out they've stumbled onto these scrolls from the, the Qumran community this this community that had held on to like, the, the words of the old testament there were scrolls like Isaiah the whole scroll of Isaiah. And what's so fascinating about this is you take these scrolls of Isaiah and of course, you know, like there's holes in them because it's like really old, but they're putting them together. And that Isaiah, that's this ancient scroll is the same virtually as, as our Isaiah. And it's this amazing testament to just how the word of God is enduring and unchanging 
and how what we read we can trust is what was written because even this old, 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 old version of Isaiah is virtually the same as what we're reading. This is really cool stuff. But in addition to some of the Old Testament books of our Bible that the Qumran community had, there were also just rules they'd written for themselves for what life should be and what it should look like. And there's something called the Temple Scroll. And in the Temple Scroll, there are these stipulations by which future kings may remain faithful. So if you're looking forward to this day when, 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 a, when a king would lead them again. But they were like, it should be a different kind of king. You know what their stipulations were? He should have but one wife and he should remain faithful to her all his life. Now you understand kings didn't do this. Kings did whatever they wanted. But the Qumran community had come to this point where they realized like, no, like we want a faithful king. Well, brothers and sisters, here's the good news. Jesus is that king. And you may look at your life, you may look at the lives of those around you, you may see all kinds of unfaithfulness. You may see people falling short, struggling, being less than what Jesus describes. But, but Jesus is that. He's the faithful king. He's the righteous one. Not just a little bit. He's exceedingly righteous. Look at the Pharisees, look at the teachers of the law. No, no, no. Give me Jesus. He's the righteous one at the core and in his conduct He's the faithful one. For you guys who can accept it and who understand it, Jesus is the true and better Hosea. You don't know who Hosea is. He's an Old Testament uh, prophet. Uh, and God came to him and said, hey, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And Hosea was like, what? <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound right. And she said, no, no, I want you to go marry a prostitute. So he goes and he finds one. Gomer is her name. He marries Gomer. They have two children. Things seem to be going well, but then Gomer... She, she leaves and she goes back to that way of life. So God comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, why don't you go get her, bring her back. And Hosea's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now technically, he had grounds to divorce her, right? Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to go get her. And so what does Hosea do? He goes and he gets her. And God explains, this is me and my people. And Jesus lives it. You think about how absurd it sounds to, to gouge your eye out, to cut your hand off. Is it any less absurd for God to put on flesh and be nailed to a cross and crucified for you and me? But that's who he is. He's the righteous groom. He's the one who pursues us. So is it any mystery that in the end, the last image we have in our Bible is of the groom who's waiting for his bride and who says, Come on, forever with me, forever with me. That's the good news. You know, the, um, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, we read a book. Uh, yeah, stop there for a second. We did that in those days. We read a book. It's called The Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Super wordy. And I was like, so why is he using so many words? He could say this a lot faster. Like, if he just said this, um, I, was, I was not a... Uh, I was a ninth grade boy, all right? But, uh, but what I loved about the story is just how powerful there was this juxtaposition, right, of a, of a woman who had been caught in adultery and had to wear a red A on, on, her, on her dress everywhere she went. The whole community would know she'd committed adultery. And it was just this very public and shameful experience. But at the same time, there was the, the minister who had been the one 
involved in this relationship with her. And no one knew it was him. It's a mystery. But still, it tortured him inside. Publicly, she suffered. Privately, he suffered. We have the good news today. We have scarlet letters. We have red letters from Jesus that suggest there is a love that is greater. There is a grace that is greater. There is a call that is deeper. And we don't have to live in shame publicly or privately. There's an invitation to come and have, be a part of a righteousness that exceeds that of the most righteous people you can imagine. A righteousness that's real. A righteousness that is credited And by the Holy Spirit, we can be empowered to answer the calling to live like him. I love to finish my messages in this way. It's uh, the best good news I've found in the New Testament. It's a cry of my heart. I pray it over and over again. I want to invite you to stand with me. Before we put feet to our faith here, there are three things I want to challenge you with in response to this word from Jesus. The first is to rejoice. We know a king who's done it right and who was more than enough. His grace is sufficient for us. So whatever your story is in relationship, rejoice that Jesus is the perfect one, the good one, the righteous one. Second, well, oh, let, me, let me speak to that for a second. So there's, um, there are other moments in your week when you can worship, you know, right? Like this isn't the only time. You don't have to have a full band here. Many of you have maybe um, uh, speakers, a radio, or maybe something you could plug up. Your, 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 I was about to say iPod. How old is that? Um, your iPhone. to your, your, And you can play worship music. You can worship at any time, and we should. This kind of good news should draw from us worship that is honest, authentic, joyful. Because God is good, even when we fall short. Second, we should resist. Resist the temptation to throw these words out or pretend like maybe Jesus might have meant something else. Like his call to a righteous life is real. And though we fall short, we can start again anew. We can, we can take the righteousness he has for us and then commit to live like him. And that's the third thing, to recommit. Today is a great opportunity to do that. Whatever your relationships have been, you can start today and live his way. Walk his way. Make, make righteousness and relationship less about the letter of the law and more about the heart of God. For you, for the people you love, make that what holiness looks like. Rejoice, resist, recommit. That's the invitation.